welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast, part of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett, author of Herrick's End, Herrick's Lie, and the forthcoming Herrick's Key. A Mighty Blaze is your online and audio destination for the very best interviews with blockbuster authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. Today's guest author is relatively new to fiction publishing, but he's definitely not new to the spotlight. James Comey is, of course, the former U.S. Attorney, Deputy Attorney General, and Director of the FBI, who was famously fired via tweet in 2017. He's also the author of two nonfiction books, Higher Loyalty and Saving Justice. After his government service ended, James expanded his love of writing into the fiction realm with Central Park West. And FYI, since this interview was recorded, he's also announced that his next novel, Westport, is due out in May of 2024. James visited A Mighty Blaze to talk with fellow writer Mark Cecil about why his wife is his first and best editor, why he decided to tackle crime fiction what he finds most difficult about writing, and why he still thinks that being a prosecutor is much harder. Hint, it had to do with bad guys constantly trying to kill him. So settle in and enjoy the conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Mark and his Renaissance man guest, James Comey. Hello and welcome everybody to another amazing, amazing, amazing edition of The Thoughtful Bro on a Mighty Blaze. We have an extra, extra, extra special guest today who you already know all about, and I'll get to introducing him in a moment, but a few words from me first. Um, a Mighty Blaze, as everybody knows, is an all-volunteer initiative that started during COVID to help writers reach readers virtually during COVID and now beyond COVID. Um, the Thoughtful Bro is a show that's here every Tuesday at two to talk about what makes great books tick, what makes great authors tick. Um, we're never asking for money on a Mighty Blaze. If you want to show the love, just give us a tweet, give us a follow, give us a like, and tell your friends about us. Um, if you want to spend money, though, I have an idea. You can spend it on fascinating debut novels that are making a big, big splash. Um, debut novels written by very much household names. Debut novels like Central Park West by Jim Comey. Um, we're going to put a link to buy Central Park West uh, in the chat. And regarding questions, um, Jim has graciously agreed to answer any and all questions that you guys have. Um, I really, really respect this about Jim Comey, that he's just so willing to be a public figure and really take any and all questions at all times. So please feel free to throw your questions in the chat and we'll leave some time for that at the end. But on to introducing the man who needs no introduction. Jim Comey is one of the most significant figures in modern American political and law enforcement history. He served as the seventh director of the FBI from 2013 until May 9th, 2017, when he was fired by President Donald Trump via tweet. It's one of those moments in my life I remember exactly where I was when that happened. That was a big moment for our country. Um, a native of Yonkers, um, Comey has served in some of the most important law enforcement roles in America, including U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Deputy, Attor Deputy Attorney General for the Department of Justice, and he has prosecuted a number of very high-profile and famous cases, including the takedown of the Gambino crime family, uh, 
Um, in the private sector, he was general counsel for the largest defense contractor in the world, Lockheed Martin, and then was general counsel at the largest hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater Associates. Um, in September 2020, a, there was a show on Showtime called The Comey Rule, which I personally very much enjoyed. We'll ask Jim later if he enjoyed it. Um, but it was based on his work, A Higher Loyalty, which for my money is one of the best political memoirs, political kind of law enforcement um, memoirs uh, of, in recent um, history. I, I loved A Higher Loyalty. It was a terrific book. Um, and he used those writing chops in writing his latest, the, his first novel, Central Park West, which is here just in time for your trip to the beach. Um, it's a great read, and the story concerns a hard charging prosecutor and a murder investigation which reveals connections between the government and the mafia. It's been praised by no less than Michael Connolly and Harlan Coben, and Publishers Weekly called Central Park West a kaleidoscopic crime novel, solid and convincing, in its and its secret sauce is in the lived-in details that can only come from someone familiar with those five steps leading up from Center Street. Jim Comey, welcome to The Thoughtful Bro. So great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. This is amazing. Um, it's such an honor. And, you know, I would just say that um, one of the strange byproducts of this very strange era that we've been living in is the way that I think the United States public has gotten to know so many of the figures that are in our government. For example, I mean, maybe Jim Comey wasn't quite a household name seven, eight years ago, um, but you certainly are now. But I mean, you join figures like Fiona Hill or Rusty Bowers or Alexander Vindman. I mean, people who I will just say personally, I'm so happy to know there are like such gifted, devoted people in our government. And um, anyway, you certainly are somebody that comes to mind that I'm thinking like, wow, you know, there's really some amazing people working in our government. So thank, thank you for your service is a way of saying that. Thank you. Um, all right. So why don't we just start with Central Park West. Tell us about this book. This book is about a federal prosecutor in Manhattan named Nora Carlton. And she is, when the book starts, trying to put away a mobster who has been elusive. She's finally going to nail him. And she's so focused on her case, she's not paying attention to a tabloid famous case that she's not involved in going on up the street, just within sight. But she's not looking at being prosecuted by the Manhattan DA involving the murder of a former governor. And then the book is really about how those cases, to Nora's surprise, slam together and take her and the people she works with on a weird twisty journey that involves all kinds of characters and an inside look at the criminal justice system. And let's just turn back the clock a little bit about why you started writing this book. I mean, this is sort of, it's something that happens a fair amount. You know, somebody who was in the CIA goes on and writes CIA novels, a detective goes on and writes detective novels. You know, there's people like Stacey Abrams, Nicole Wallace, Admiral Jim Stavridis, Newt Gingrich, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush is a painter now. So um, tell us about your decision to kind of make your way into the creative world. Yeah, I was never going to do this. I wrote nonfiction. You mentioned A Higher Loyalty. I wrote that after I got fired because I felt like I had to. And then I would go find something else to do. And I love to teach. And so I taught at Howard University. I taught at Columbia. And I kept getting nudged by nonfiction editor, one in particular, who kept saying, hey, man, you really write narrative well, you write dialogue well, this scene, that scene. And I would say, hey, man, it's not a scene. It's my life. <laughs> and he would say, no, no, you should consider it. And maybe we could pair you with a like a James Patterson. And I said, no, I've always loved to write. I've written a lot in my life. But look, if I were going to do it, I'd do it myself. But I, I don't want to do that. And I think what happened to me is the farther I got from government, 
easier it became to think about the work I had done and to consider it. And my wife pitched this story idea to me and I started to give it a shot and I found it addictive. And I'm nervous about it because this is what I want to do when I grow up. But <laughs> I found it harder than nonfiction, but much more fun. And your family is sort of critical to your entire creative process, I must say. I mean, you, so I, I want to hear you talk about how, you know, your wife, you said, pitched you the idea, and then she continued to have a role in the writing of the book. And then on top of that, um, your lead character is somewhat based on your own daughter, right? Yeah. Look, my family is the center of my life and my identity. None of the jobs I've had are my identity. I'm a, I'm a spouse and a dad and a grandfather now. And so they're so deep in my life to begin with. But my wife has great story vision. If she were here, she'd say, look, I'm not a writer. Sure, but she's read a lot and she can conceive of story in ways I can't. And so we worked together and I would write and she would review it on a Google doc and make comments and I would review them privately. It was easier for me to go through the stages of denial before, <laughs> before accepting that she was right if I was alone. And so I would I would do that and then we'd get it out to the five kids and they would give me loving and brutal feedback and we'd iterate and iterate. And so, yes, I was the writer, but I couldn't do it without them. And obviously, most importantly, I, first of all, I envisioned this story, as did my wife originally, with a guy as the protagonist, mm. kind of a mini me. And it, it should have been obvious. It took me a while to see it, that it it should be a woman for a bunch of reasons, but most importantly, because the month I started writing this, so the end of 2021, I conceived of this mob story and I kept thinking about courtroom 318 where I had prosecuted John and Joe Gambino when my oldest daughter, my oldest child was four years old. And I, I missed at least initially <laughs> that my own daughter was standing in that courtroom prosecuting a really bad person, Glenn Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's partner in crime in abusing a lot of young girls who grew up to be courageous women who testified against them. And, and she was in courtroom 318 doing that. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, it can't be a mini me. It has to be my big girl who's grown up now and is leading the violent, violent and organized crime unit. And she's on her feet in the same courtroom. And so I couldn't go to the trial. She wouldn't let me. She said it would be a thing if I came. <laughs> but, but my wife went, I got reports and I changed the protagonist to Nora Carlton. And she's inspired by my oldest daughter, but she's really a combination of all four of my girls who are smart, strong, tall women. And that gives me the freedom if they don't like something about Nora to say it's, well, it's based on your sister <laughs> and, and to get away with it. But it is, it made it a labor of love because all of a sudden I wasn't writing about me. I, I don't want to write about me. I'm writing about these cases I loved, this work I loved, and a person that I still love who does that work now. Right. So it was an entire family experience. I love it. Um, so I had read that you, in preparing to write this, you hadn't read a ton of crime fiction yourself. And I thought very, uh, of course, once you said it, I realized you, you said in a different interview, like, well, all day long, I spend my life putting away bad guys, dealing with these terrible situations. Like, I don't want to do that when I come home at night to relax. I get it. But still, you've certainly, you know, seen your share of TV, read your share of books. And I'm just wondering, like, just pick out one thing for me that crime writers, procedural writers usually get wrong. I think... I don't want to offend any of them, but I think they often, very often, feel the need to generate excitement by having the participants on the government side engage in major wrongdoing. Mm. So, so break a law, 
hurt somebody in service of a greater good. You know, they turn out to be a hero, but the excitement comes from something outside the work, the rules of the work. And look, I know that happens, but in my lived experience, nearly all of the prosecutors, investigators I worked with were flawed like I am, but they were just trying to get it right. And they weren't running off the field to do something that was out of bounds. And I thought, you know, I think the excitement is there if you show it the way it really is. And so that's what I've tried to do. But I think in most books that that hook that the investigator went rogue or the prosecutor went rogue, I get why it generates excitement, but it doesn't doesn't square with my experience. So, Jim, I heard you in a different interview say that writing a novel, you enjoy your life now, you know, you, you get more exercise, you don't have to wear a tie every day, you get more sleep. But I also heard you say writing a novel is an easier job than being head of the FBI. And as a writer myself, I just have to take exception to that. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been head of the FBI, but writing a novel is hard. And so here's my question for you. Um, what did you struggle with most? What's the hardest part about writing a novel? Um. I still think the FBI director was harder just because of the sleep deprivation of people trying to kill you. Um, I hope that's not part of your writing life, but it's uh, probably a couple things I found really difficult. First is to keep the characters because they're made up people online. That is, I found that my characters would drift and start to sound like each other. Mm. And that I didn't, I would lose track of what they were supposed to sound like and be like, and that's where my family readers helped me so much, especially my wife. She would say, you know, Benny's starting to sound like Nora here. And I'd go back and first of all, I'd deny it. Then I'd go back and read it out loud and say, ah, oh, you're right. So because they're imagined, keeping it on track is really hard. The second thing that's really hard is keeping the energy level to stay with it through so many changes. Mm-hmm. That I once heard John Green describe it as your first draft is pulling a block of stone out of a quarry and you're nowhere near a statue. What gets you to the statue is all the little chiseling. The little chiseling is really tiring. And, and there's a danger that at the end, after you've been through so many rounds of feedback, you just get weak and fall on the floor and say, okay, okay, okay. And maintaining the energy to resist a copy editors messing with your commas is, is physically difficult in ways I did not expect. Almost, one might say, as difficult as having a job where people are trying to kill you. Some would say that. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to ask you a few questions about being a prosecutor. Um, you know, in this, in the, the, you know, your lead character here is um, involved with prosecuting the mob, and as you were in your real life. And so, a few questions about that that I always had. So, one is, as a prosecutor, like, say you're going after the Gambino crime family. To what extent are you just? ever worried about your own safety? I mean, you're just driving down the street and you see a car kind of up close behind you and you're like, these guys kill people for a living and I'm trying to put this guy in jail. Um, Am I in danger? I'm just wondering like how much, how do you handle that and deal with that and process that? I, this is going to be a strange sounding answer, but I didn't worry about it much when I was prosecuting members of Cosa Nostra. So people who've been inducted into the mafia had to promise at their induction ceremony when they were dripping blood from their trigger finger onto the picture of a saint, which would be burned in their hand, they had to acknowledge that one of the rules they promised to follow was never harm law enforcement. Now, that's not true in the Sicilian mafia, but in the American mafia, they swear that that will be the case. And in the main, they abide that rule. Most of the other rules they violate, like like the rules against fighting in hockey, I suppose. But this rule is important to them because the size of the American state 
that if they killed law enforcement, harm law enforcement, the state could crush them. Mm. And I can actually remember being part of such a thing. In 1988, a mob guy named Gus Faraci killed an undercover DEA agent named Everett Hatcher. And it wasn't even clear that he knew Everett was an undercover agent. But the moment the killing happened, two searches began to find Gus Faraci, ours, which I was a part of, and the mobs. And they found him first. And they shot him in the face with a machine gun, Gus Faraci, and left him on the street in Brooklyn as a message. Machine gun, shoot him in the face. He can't have an open casket. That's a dishonor to the family, his <laughs> personal family. But it was a message that they actually sent through contacts with law enforcement. We don't tolerate this. We found him. This is now done. And, and that sounds like a scene out of a movie, but it, a lot of the mob is fake. This thing is real. And so... I never worried. I mean, I worried a teeny bit. My wife came to visit one day in court when I was trying the Gambino brothers and an FBI agent who wasn't the sharpest knife in our drawer. had a receipt reserved for her. She came in the back of this cavern in courtroom 318. He started yelling, Mrs. Comey, Mrs. Comey over here. And she tried to ignore him and shrink behind the bench, but he kept yelling her name. I, I, show, I shouldn't say I didn't worry at all. I got many more threats in my career from wingnuts too stupid to realize that if it wasn't me, it would be somebody else. Right? Mm. There's thousands of me's in the Department of Justice. Right. And one other question before we move on from this about like things that I've always wondered about being a prosecutor. So I have a friend um, who is a, a federal prosecutor here in Massachusetts where I live, and he investigates child trafficking and the dark web. And it, he talks about some of the cases that he works on to me. I mean, he's not revealing anything special. This is often after the case has passed, but he just talks about the going through the evidence of cases like this and the just enormous dark side that he is witness to as his regular nine to five job. And I guess my question about that to you is how do you process that? And how does that make, I mean, you're seeing on the daily, the ugliest side of humanity. What do you do with all that? Yeah, it's a really important question. And often the answer in law enforcement is that you don't process it because to process it is to be weak in some way. And one of the things that I talked about a lot when I was director at FBI is we have to acknowledge that that pain drips inside you like an acid and it will eat you alive from the inside. And so you have to first acknowledge it and then take steps to care for yourself, self-care, because you're, you're, a lot of secondhand trauma is landing in the center of your being. And if you're not careful, it'll destroy you. And so I, I, anyway, among the things I talked about was a really important, the great importance of sleep, of family, of exercise, of not self-medicating with alcohol, which is a real problem in law enforcement, but starting by recognizing I'm seeing darkness all day long. For a second reason though, it's not only bad for you, it warps your view of humanity. It's a lot of cops who work midnight shifts. Think about what they see. They never mm. see families in the park. They never see moms pushing a stroller. They never see old people on the front porch. Instead, they see people usually at the worst moment of their lives, whether they're victims or whether they're committing a crime. And that can really warp you and make you less effective and make you dangerous as a law enforcement officer. And so it's important to confront it for that dark, know the darkness is a warped view of reality, necessary that you get into it, but know how it can affect you both physically and your view of the rest of the world. Do you feel like you personally did a good job just yourself, like dealing with that? Do you feel like you've kind of been able to manage it? 
I think so. I mean, I'm an unreliable narrator when it comes to myself, I suppose, but it's, I worked really hard to be disciplined about sleep, about getting away from the work. And I learned this from my wife, especially when I was a young prosecutor, she would say, look, when you're here reading Goodnight Moon to the kids, you have to be here, mm. be in this moment with the old lady whispering hush and the cow jumping over the moon. Don't be thinking about a witness you're going to, you're going to write about next. And so the ability to compartmentalize was really, really important to me. And again, exercise. I used to, if people from the bureau are listening, they'll, they'll laugh because I would tell them, I expect you to sleep and I expect you to love somebody. And the good news mm -hmm. is you can multitask because you can sleep with people you love. And I need you to do that to take care of yourself. So I've, I've been surrounded by love and by people who helped me get away from the work and who helped me make sure I stayed physically healthy. And so by and large, it's been good. I, I missed some things. You, know, you mentioned the Comey rule. I think I missed the impact of my work and some of the criticism of me, the impact of that on the people who loved me. And I think I underweighted that and I really regret that. On, about the movie, did you like, the, the, it was a miniseries, but did you like the miniseries? Yeah, I, I mean, I liked it for two reasons. I liked it because I thought it captured the nature and quality of the people involved in the nightmarish decisions we were involved with in 2016. And I thought it also, but I love it because Jennifer Ely, the British American actor, is my wife. You don't have to meet mm. my wife if you've She's watched great. that. She just inhabits the person that I'm married to. And so I was very glad they told the story of the people of the FBI. The parts of it I didn't like, I mean, I get it, that some of the conversations were made up. And I would say to the movie folks when I saw it, well, that President Obama and I didn't have that that we talked, but those aren't the words we said. And they would say, but is it true in a larger sense? And I would say, I don't know what that means because I'm kind of a true in a narrow sense guy. Obama didn't say that and I didn't say this. So I don't know how to help you beyond that. <laughs> so that, that, that took a lot of getting used to, but it, by and large, they were fair. They depicted my family in a good way, but I, I, I watched it. The first time I watched it, I started crying when I saw mm. how they depicted my family because I realized that I had missed how painful it is for people to watch someone you love be attacked. When you're the person at the center of the storm, you can push it aside, say, look, I know I'm doing the right thing. I'm trying to get this right. I'm a person of integrity, so forget it, close the window. But the people who love you are getting ricochets constantly on social media and in the media, and it hurts them in a way I should have gotten more. And, and I, I, I've told my family, I'm very sorry that I missed that. Mm. Very moving. And I, I agree that your family was portrayed so well in that movie and I, in that series. And I just, uh, I, I really loved it. And it was sort of, uh, it brought, I just watched it over the weekend. It brought back to mind so much. I mean, I think it was just a very traumatic time for our country and, and there you were in the center of it. Um, all right. So now we're going to shift, we're going to shift gears and play a little bit of a fun game. Okay. So Jim, you're a great writer and I, I just want to particularly single out that I thought the kind of back and forth, the courtroom back and forths were great. Um, whenever somebody's interrogating somebody else, it was just sharp as a tack. Um, great, great writing. And I thought the characterization uh, of the characters was terrific too. And so on that note, I thought we'd just play um, a game. So here's how the game's gonna work. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through about a dozen people, real people, and you're going to give me one adjective to kind of, that captures their essence, okay? So here we go. And you, most of these people you know personally, but some of them are, are dead. But okay, so let's start. J. Edgar Hoover, one adjective. Complicated. Elliot Ness. Straight. 
Barack Obama. Wise. Rudy Giuliani. Changed. John Gotti. Thug-like. That's a hyphen, so it's one word. <laughs> you are a great writer. Um, um, President George W. Bush. Insecure. Dick Cheney. Overconfident. Mike Flynn. Weird. <laughs> okay. Uh, Robert Mueller. Principled. Merrick Garland. Thoughtful. Donald Trump. Damaged. That was terrific. Thank you for playing along with that. Um, that was wonderful. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone Podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malkwee, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. So, Jim, I want to transition uh, a little bit into some of the current events um, that we're seeing play out right now. It's a very high drama time for our country. It seems like it's been high drama, high alert for, for uh, years now. Um, and I just want to say to people in the audience, I see a lot of your questions have come through and we will leave time for that at the end. So hold tight. Um, but let's just move quickly, Jim, through some questions around what's going on at Mar-a-Lago. Um, and a lot of this just comes from, I, I do consume a fair amount of this myself and wa watch the news, but there's just some questions that sort of have remained um, unanswered for me. But, and some of them are questions that sort of only you can answer. So let's just talk about first the indictment on the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Just tell me what caught your eye about it? What made you sort of sit up in your chair a little bit when you read that? That they chose to make it what we called in the business a speaking indictment. The only thing you're required to do in presenting an indictment to the grand jury is just literally allege the elements of the crime. Look at the statute, say this is what the law requires the person to have done. And so most indictments just have the defendant's name and then a recitation of those so-called elements of the crime. In some cases, we would ask the grand jury to tell a story. And this is one of those that you know what's going to happen at this trial if you read that indictment. It's it's really well written. And it's got exhibits, got photographs and transcripts. It's got all the evidence in there. And that tells me that they were looking to communicate with the American people and tell them, here's why this matters so much. And so they told a story. 
It's a, I, and I agree very much with their approach. And tell me about your personal reaction when you saw photos of these extremely highly classified documents in a bathroom, on a stage. Just tell me how that made you feel. First, I wish I could say I was surprised. I mean, it was mm -hmm. deeply weird, but but I I had the sense that Donald Trump, first of all, I think he is deeply weird, but also that his, his behavior is often borders on the bizarre. But the scope of it stunned me that it's, the Department of Justice, when it approves indictments that relate to classified information, considers as customers the what are called the owners of that information, the CIA, the NSA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and goes to them like their clients and says, are you guys cool if we mention your document in this indictment? And oftentimes they're like, no way, don't mention it, don't say a thing, because they know that that then more has to be supplied to the defense as a risk of more public disclosure. So I was really struck by how many classified documents the customers, so the members of the intelligence community, agreed to have described in this indictment and to risk further disclosure around. And so that tells me, first of all, that there's stuff they didn't list because it's too sensitive, and that the entire American intelligence community was uh, probably stunned and deeply troubled by the information and the way it was handled. And on that note, um, I heard you say in a different interview that you thought, just generally speaking, looking at this indictment, that um, now we know the whole story or close to the whole story. And I was just, I've just always had a feeling about this. And I'm not a law enforcement person, um, but here's my kind of layman's view. I'm wondering, like, are there documents that are in fact so sensitive and so highly dangerous that if they were in fact right now in the hands of our adversaries or somebody who definitely should not have it, and that in fact is the worst thing that has is the result of this, is that the, we know, somebody in the government knows these documents are now sitting in Moscow or something, but that we, the American citizens, would never know about that. Is it possible that like the government would withhold a, a lot of the most damaging information that that information is out there? Yes, it happens all the time for reasons that make make sense that you don't, you don't want two things to happen. You've got very, very sensitive information. You don't want to risk it getting out further through the discovery process and all kinds of people in the court being uh, uh, having access to it. But second, you don't want to confirm to the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians that what they may have is real. Mm. And so if you put it in the indictment, then the Russians are like, ah, this thing we have on the desk, that's a real thing. Because the, Amer the Americans wouldn't, couldn't, mess around in a court filing. And so this is confirmation by the US government that we have our hands on a crown jewel. So I can see reasons why really bad stuff would be left out. Okay. All right, that is very helpful actually. And that's sort of what I thought. Um, but again, it's all speculative. We don't know that that's the case, but it's possible. So I wanna run through. So Donald Trump was on Fox News last night. He had a very interesting conversation with Brett Baer. Did you see that interview? I saw a clip where Bear reviewed all the people that all the all the, the only the best people thing. Only the best, the gutless pig bear bar and all these people, stone cold loser. Only the best people. All right. I want to run through there's a different part of that interview where um Trump just sort of rambles around uh, around questions around why did you have the documents? And it was sort of like an outline of Trump's many different defenses. And I want to kind of in, again, kind of lightning round fashion, go through, 
I think it's about half a dozen different defenses that I identified. So number one, Hillary did it and it's just like Hillary. Tell me why that is, how you feel about that as a defense. There's no meaningful similarity at all between the Clinton case and this case on a bunch of levels, but the two that jump out at me is the nature and character of the information at issue is so different. Hillary Clinton's case involved her communicating on some occasions about classified topics on an unclassified email system. Did not involve documents, did not involve documents anywhere near at the level of this. And second, there was no provable obstruction in connection with the Clinton case. And here you have sort of the mother of all obstructions that is just so obvious that changes the character of the case. So no meaningful comparison. Anybody who tries to compare those two is not uh, interested in a serious uh, comparison effort. It's interesting in a higher loyalty, I mean, which you wrote, you know, five years ago, um, before any of this could have been imagined. Um, I think you boil it down to two things. You said you famously said no reasonable prosecutor would bring this case against Hillary Clinton. And you said there were two main criteria for that. One was, um, is she lying? Did she lie to the FBI? And number two is, was there a, a knowledge of guilt? Did she, was she doing something that she knew was wrong? And you concluded, nope. She didn't know it was wrong, wasn't intentionally doing anything wrong, and she didn't lie to the FBI. And I think what you have here is uh, a different scenario with Trump. The opposite of that. Yep. The opposite. All right. So let's keep going. Other other, other defenses he made last night. There's a recording of Trump um, talking to somebody about a classified document, and he seems to be waving a piece of paper around in this recording and saying, look, I could have declassified this, but I didn't. Trump says the witnesses are lying. That wasn't actually a classified document that I was referring to. As a prosecutor, how does that defense strike you? It, it's interesting. First of all, he's such a moron for, <laughs> in general, but for laying all this out, because now you know that's, I mean, his defense will be like a helicopter looking for a place to land in the jungle all over the place, but but it will be, and so it gives you a chance to make sure as a prosecutor, you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's. Look, it's possible in Donald Trump world that he was lying to the people he was showing this to. Seems very, very unlikely that they would mistake a news clipping for uh, a war plan. But here's what I expect, that the prosecutors have gone and gotten those, the people, everybody who was in that room and put them in the grand jury. And so the prosecutors already know and have locked in under oath what all of everybody who was there will say about what that document looked like and how it was handled. The one thing that was interesting to me is I don't see in the indictment where that document is identified and spelled out. Mm. And so it's possible that they haven't found it. It's possible that there may be something to it, that, that he was it was a memo, but it wasn't a classified memo, and so he was just lying to his guests. I don't know. But what's important about the tape is it absolutely is incredibly valuable to the prosecutors in establishing his state of mind, right? right. With respect to classification, his ability to declassify, and things related to that. Okay, let's keep going. Yeah. So um, Bear asks him, why didn't you give the documents back? And he says a number of things. Number one, he says, well, I needed to go through them and I'm very busy. How's that hold up? Uh, utterly irrelevant. Uh, he he knew, I mean, it's, it, it's again, it's an acknowledgement that he knew the documents were subject to a court ordered subpoena. And so saying that I'm busy, and again, I suppose the prosecutors could spend time showing all of us what Donald Trump actually does during the day, but, but it, it's irrelevant because he knew he was subject to a court ordered production and fail to do it. Okay, and just one more, there, there were other kind of smaller excuses and defenses that he made, but I think 
Here's one that I think is a blanket defense that he makes across cases. January 6th, the, the case in Georgia, I'm sure. Um, he does this all the time. And I want to hear your response to this. The basic thing that he says is, I believed that it was my right to do this. I believed the election was stolen. Uh, therefore, I behaved in this way. I believed the Presidential Records, uh, Records Act said that I could have these documents. Talk to me about like the effectiveness of somebody who is just cocksure that they were not breaking the law. Well, it's hard because the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury of 12 who must agree unanimously establishing that the defendant was aware of the generally unlawful nature of their conduct. You don't have to know the statute or anything, but you need to know that you were doing something you shouldn't do. The challenge with Donald Trump in any investigation of him is the nature of his chaotic mind, that it's not even obvious that he knows what he believes moment to moment, which is why I've long thought that the documents case was the greatest threat to him. Because on January 6th, he'll be able to say, yeah, even, and I forget these people's names, but even though the, it, it, it doesn't seem to make sense that I thought we could overturn the election. The Kraken lady or the pillow guy, they were telling me I could. And so I relied on them. And it seems unreasonable now, but I, this is what I believe. The problem with the documents case is that it's so focused and it's so obvious that he had no right to retain these documents and that he had an obligation to abide the grand jury subpoena. And that's where the tape becomes so valuable because it's really hard for him to say, oh, no, I had the power to, you know, I believe that I had declassified everything in my mind. Well, then why is he saying on the tape that it, it's still classified, so he has to be very careful, he can't declassify? I think his mind in general is a challenge for prosecutors. In the documents case, I think they've got the upper hand. Okay. Um, a few other questions about his behavior as uh, a defendant on an, in an upcoming trial. And I'm curious as a prosecutor, what your take is. Um, as far as like what his strategy is um, in attacking the people who are prosecuting him. I mean, I mean, he called you an untruthful slime ball and all the other things he called you. And he calls Jack Smith on Father's Day, Sunday morning, Father's Day, a slick and deranged, a sick and deranged sleazebag. That's what he said about Jack Smith. Um, I'm just wondering, like, A, have you ever seen any behavior like this, like this kind of public attacking in this way of a prosecutor? And B, just like, just put yourself in the shoes of Jack Smith or just imagine that it is happening to you. Maybe it has um, as a prosecutor on a case. How does that affect how you think about it? How does that work? Yeah, I've seen it not a lot, but I've seen some public figures under investigation preemptively attack or more, more fair to say undermine the prosecutor with the goal of shaping the prosecutor's decisions, trying to scare them off a little bit and hoping maybe to reach and shape a jury pool. So I've seen that, but there's never been anything on this scale. I mean, Trump has been taking a flamethrower to the FBI and the Department of Justice from the word go. So from 2015 and 16, because he knew that the threat to him is gonna come from the people responsible for finding the facts and enforcing the law. And so he would prep that battlefield and try to tear them down. So I have to divide it into the public sphere and the courtroom. It does him no good in the courtroom because all it will serve to do is motivate the prosecutors. And I don't know Jack Smith, but these are high quality career people who are not political in any way, but they will see it as an attack on the rule of law. And so it will energize them. Whenever they're feeling tired or discouraged, they'll remember what's at stake here.
you'll have a little otherwise inside the courtroom because the cool thing about American courtrooms is you can say whatever you want in front of Four Seasons Total Landscaping, you know, with your hair dye running down your cheeks. But you come into a courtroom, you better bring the evidence and heaven help you if you make a false statement. I think it's more likely that this is designed for things that are less my expertise outside the courtroom to try and shore up the base, hold people inside the cult, all those sorts of things. That's my take. Yeah, and maybe try to find a way to get one juror to like never agree um, to, to the verdict or maybe ensure himself a pardon for the next Republican president. Who knows? Um, just one last question on this case. Um, Judge Eileen Cannon caused a lot of consternation when she got the assignment. Um, obviously, she was favorable to him um, earlier in this case and then got um, overruled um, by uh, an appeals court twice. Um, I My theory on it is it actually is the best outcome because if it was an Obama judge, then there would be this, it would be totally vulnerable to the threat of, to the the critique that oh there's no justice it's all it's you'd be hearing every day it's just an Obama judge a sleazebag Obama judge he couldn't have picked a better judge for himself than this and therefore the result might be more palatable. What's your take on Cannon as the judge? I completely agree with your take. I don't know Judge Cannon at all, but I followed what happened during the the proceedings in the investigation phase. And I think the most likely outcome is that she is deeply enmeshed in the legal culture in the United States and, and is seeking to get her reputation back. I mean, you saw what happened in that case. She got smacked by a panel from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which, which oversees Florida and other states in the federal system. And two of the three judges who smacked her were Trump appointees. And so a message was sent that this legal culture is not about any of that nonsense. And so I could imagine a lot of pressure that she's going to feel internally to get it right and to show that she is part of the legal culture and not part of any political culture. And for the reasons you said, I think that's really bad news for Donald Trump. Great. All right. We've got about 10 minutes left. A few more questions from me, and then we'll get to some audience questions. Um, Big story in the Washington Post yesterday, um, just to summarize quickly, it's a massive article, but the idea, part of the idea of the article is that um, the, uh, the Justice Department and Chris Ray at the FBI were um, allegedly kind of slow, excuse me, slow walking um, the investigation into January 6th and the fake elector scheme. And part of the implication of the article is that in the shadow of all the controversy that surrounded you and your time at the FBI, that maybe Chris Ray and Merrick Garland too are just so trigger shy about appearing political in any way and maybe have even overcorrected. And I'm just wondering what your thought is on that. I don't, I, first of all, I read the article. I yeah. don't know whether that's what it is. I hope not. They're, they're both very smart people. So I hope they wouldn't overlearn any lessons from my experience. And there are lessons to be learned from my experience, but. I think it's more likely who they are. They're both deeply principled, very conservative with a lowercase c people, as is the deputy attorney general, Lisa Monaco. They're very similar people, all them people you could trust all day long, every day, but they approach things in a very cautious, almost judicial way. And I, again, knowing all three of them, I would bet that's more likely what's at the heart of it and not some fear of people throwing rocks at them. Okay. All right. So wrapping up my questions, we'll do a few more kind of quick answer type questions. So um, looking back at your career, what are you, this, what is the single accomplishment that you are most satisfied with? I, 
in four years of effort, I hope in a lasting way, change the trajectory of the FBI with respect to uh, attracting a more diverse workforce. When I got there, we had a crisis, which was 83% of the special agents look like me. And I tried to explain to the workforce that's there's nothing wrong with looking like me, but we can't all look like me if we're going to protect this country. And so I made it my top priority to try and change that. And I made real progress. And this is not something people talk about publicly, but it's actually the reason I grieve getting fired. Because if I spent 10 years on it, then I would have a higher confidence sense that it's going to continue. Sorry, too long an answer. No, amazing. Um, what worries you most about America right now? What worries me most is how are we going to help our fellow citizens escape the fog of lies? There are, I actually have empathy for millions and millions of Trump voters. They're trapped. Trump was right that he could shoot somebody in fifth, on Fifth Avenue and not lose supporters. Probably not for the reasons he thought. It's because it's so hard for people to turn away from a fraud. The images of January 6th whispered to Trump voters, you fool, look what you did. Look what you did to this country. It's a rare person who can look at that pain and say, you're right, I was wrong, and walk away from the fog. Most turn inward and try and memory hole it. So we've got millions of people trapped in that. I've seen it in fraud cases. It happens to humans. Helping them get out of that fraud with a certain sense of empathy is a big challenge for us, but it's a path back to a healthier America. And by the way, I thought Liz Cheney did an amazing job trying to speak that way to those voters uh, and try to say, it's okay to come back. You were lied to. I mean, we know that you're patriotic and you just got sold, you know, a bill of goods. So, yeah. Um, okay. What gives you hope about America? That I know our history, how just terribly screwed up we've been at so many points in our history. Right? I was a little kid in the 60s. Our country was literally coming apart. And it didn't because Lincoln was right. There's always just enough virtue to save America. And second, because I've seen so many young people, I was worried they would withdraw. They've done the opposite. They're sort of pushing us aside saying, all right, you effed it up. Okay, we got this. And that gives me great hope. Great. All right. One last uh, literary game, a fill in the blank game, and then we'll go to audience questions. Just hear me out on this. When Jim Comey was a young man, he believed, this is your future biographer, when Jim Comey was a young man, he believed that the rule of law in America was blank. It was only much later in life that he realized the truth about the rule of law is blank. I would say he believed that it was um, paramount, and it's only much later in life that he realized its story is more complicated. Mm. Great. All right. Let's go to some audience questions here. My producer will just throw them up on screen. All right. Christina Powers, do you feel your writing has helped you cope with the intensity of your career and helping yourself and readers during the present day political chaos? I think maybe. I wish my wife was here. My wife is trained as a marriage and family therapist and not because of me, by the way. Um, and so she would have an interesting take on this. I think so, because it's allowed me to have a little bit of nostalgia, go back to the work I did through an, a, a later adulthood lens, but also think about it through the lens of my kids. And so that's been cathartic in a lot of ways. So I think the answer is yes. Great. Let's do a few more. 
Trisha Blanchett, are there any settings or locations you are interested in exploring in future books? And you do have a future book coming. Yeah, I finished the second book. It's now out for loving feedback from one remaining uh, reader. And that's the same character. Nora Carlton is at the center of it, but I've moved it to a world I know well, the world, the world of the world's largest hedge funds. And I want to tell a crime novel story through there. And then we imagine another story in Manhattan and then three stories in D.C. D.C. is too icky a place for me to start, but I'd like to take readers to the places I've been, to the CIA, to the White House sit room, to Congress, as awful as that sounds, and tell stories through there. I think it'd be for me, probably therapeutic for me and also uh, interesting for readers. I sort of imagine that might be the case that you're just sort of you, your books might kind of follow along with the stages of your career. So, you know, next we get the hedge fund book started out. Yeah. I think that's why Patrice, my wife thought of that pitched this idea because that's how I started out. I started out doing this work in Manhattan. Yeah. All right, cool. Let's do maybe two more questions. Audience questions. You said you wanted writing to be your job when you grew up. Um, who inspired you? Did you love reading as a kid? I loved reading. I love stories. I was a storyteller. That was my assigned role in my family. My folks always had dinner together with the four kids. And my job was to have seen stuff at school or my part-time jobs and to tell the story in a way that entertained and held them. And then I wrote fiction when I was in high school. And so I've always loved that and loved writing. I'm not sure how I got on that. Having had my own kids, I'm sure a big part of it was just nature. But I think that role in my family that I was the entertainer and the storyteller cemented it. Great. Let's try another one. Thank you for these questions, guys. These are great. Jane Roper, um, do you regret bringing up the investigation into Hillary Clinton's email server just before the 2016 election, knowing it might have helped get Trump elected? Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, yes, I regret being involved. But again, <laughs> I don't want to increase anybody's pain. But you got to go back to that moment and look at my options. I had two and they both sucked. They were both doors to hell and telling Congress that my testimony, which I testified over and over and over again, late summer and fall, that this thing was done. The American people could trust us. We had done a complete investigation. Go vote. We're out of this. It's finished. And now I knew it wasn't finished in an enormous way. Do I leave that testimony? false and let people rely on it? Or do I say something? Both of those options are terrible. I hated being there, but I hope this doesn't upset folks. But even with the benefit of hindsight, I don't think I could let that go. Let that testimony defraud people in the way it would have. And so I wish we hadn't been involved at all. It has sucked as much as I expected it would, but I really don't think of it differently given what I knew at the time. And Jim, I'll just add that, like, you know, people always talk about what did happen. And you talk about the other door that led to hell. And if you think about that other door, it's not hard to imagine that it come, like Hillary wins. Let, let's just say that your decision actually did move the election. We don't know that for sure. But let's just say it did. And Hillary won. And then it came out later. And Trump is still a candidate. And you know he would run again. And then he figured he goes public with this idea or it leaks somehow that you sat on this information. Then Trump spends four years trashing the FBI as, as in the tank for Hillary. And then he wins in a landslide and guts the FBI in 2020. I mean, I don't know. That's just fit science fiction right there. But I'm just saying that like people don't talk a lot about what that other door to hell might have looked like. Yeah. 
I don't want to go old man in the high castle on you, but yeah, you can imagine um, really dark outcomes if we'd chosen the other door. And again, I knew people would never be able to see it the same way because everyone's looking back down a path that we chose, but it was a nightmare. Okay. All right. We have so many questions. I am limiting it now to two. And we're going to go two quick answers on these. Let's okay. Let's throw these up. Here we go. Uh, Peter, what did Trump say to you that famous day when you tried to hide in the curtains and he called you up and shook it and shook your hand? He whispered. First of all, he tried to hug me and I resisted that. And it was even worse because he pulled me only close enough that it looked like he was kissing me. Oh, my God. But he whispered, I really look forward to working with you, which was, you know, just as credible as anything else that he says. <laughs> OK, thank you. All right. Last question from the audience. Um, how do you think the incredible rigors of your political career helped you with your writing process? I think I got the chance to see people and institutions from an unusual angle and with unusual stakes involved. And I, it makes it easier for me to imagine stories because they say, write what you know. Well, I know a lot of pretty cool stuff, uh, nightmare stuff, a lot of it, but it, so it's fertile ground for stories, makes it less, less important that I imagine stories because I've got a lot to draw on. Great. All right. So we're going to wrap up the audience questions there. Um, and one last question from me, Jim, I just want to say that I remember vividly when you talked about uh, publicly and, and in your book, A Higher Loyalty, uh, this incident when you were a, a young man, a child, and you were held up at gunpoint in your home with your brother. And um, you talked about that incident and how you have kind of developed a rule about living life from that. And, you know, you have, unlike most people, thankfully, you were in a situation where your life flashed before your eyes and you thought I'm going to die within the next even few seconds. And you said that you, what you learned from that is to, if you ever want to reset yourself, think that you are in that situation and what appears to you as meaningful um, in your life. And I just want to say, first of all, how much I think about that. And, and, and I, and I like that as a kind of cleanser um, to help you realize what's important in your life and not. But I guess my question to you now is, you know, here you are, um, having lived through so much and done so much. Um, when you do that exercise now, um, what do you think about? And do you feel like you've lived the, the kind of life of meaning that you wanted? Yeah, so thank you for that. I, I do it often. And I know the answer. I want to have been a great husband, father, and pop, grandfather, and and helped people who needed me and who I was able to help. And that's who I want to have been. And so I, I try really hard to constantly ask myself that question so I keep it on track. And it helps me also not care about a lot of the things that consume, would otherwise consume a lot of our days. Well, thank you, Jim. That was very, that was great. It's wonderful. It is such an honor to meet you and to have you on the show. And again, um, thank you for all you've done, keeping people safe in this country over your entire career. And hey, the next part of your career is just beginning. Uh, the book is outstanding, folks. It's called Central Park West. Um, the links to buy it have been in the chat. Please buy it. Bring it on your vacation. You'll love it. Um, and Jim, when can we expect the next book? I think it'll be out next spring. So, you, I mean, I, I've learned these things move at the speed of wood, but it'll be 
it'll be next spring. So um, yeah, can't publishing, wait. Publishing is no rocket docket. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, well, Jim, this has been such an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for all your questions and comments. I saw them all. Um, I really appreciate it. And um, we'll see you next week on Thoughtful Bro. Thanks, Jim. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us for season nine. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My adventure fantasy novels, Herrick's End and Herrick's Lie, books one and two of the Neath trilogy, are available now if you want to check them out. Now I'm off to prepare a new series of great episodes for season 10. Until then, as always, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. Thank you.